Hello, friends, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. Thank you so much for the gift of your attention and time. And it won't be wasted because the conversation you're about to hear is an absolute delight with one of the world's experts in the field of social and emotional learning and development. Her name is Professor Stephanie Jones. She is the Gerald S. Lesser Professor in Child Development and Education, and also the director of the Easel Lab at the Harvard Graduate School of Education in the United States. Her research is anchored in prevention science and focuses on the effects of poverty, exposure to violence, on social emotional behavioral development from early childhood through to adolescence. She's especially interested in the impact of preschool and elementary level social emotional learning interventions on behavioral and academic outcomes and classroom practices and new curriculum development, implementation and testing. And that means, you know, how do we create the right type of learning environments where young people can develop the skills to self-regulate and learn optimally? She serves on numerous advisory boards uh, and consulting groups, including as uh, a member recently as a member of the Council of Distinguished Scientists for the Aspen National Commission on Social Emotional Academic Development. And her research is published in many, many different journals. She, of course, holds a PhD from Yale University and a BA from Barnard College. Really hope you enjoy this conversation with Stephanie Jones, who's one of the most delightful professors I've been lucky to learn alongside. My first question, what's something you're learning? And then what's and a transformed education to you? The first, my first answer is people should listen when people ask them questions. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. It's um, it's what's something you're learning at the moment? So yeah, what's something you're learning? And it can be from any domain of your life, of course. Yes. Even the arrival fellow. That was so. That was really interesting. And we just dropped into that, but um, yeah. but yeah, it can be any any part of life, work, education, academia, uh, reflections on. The metacrisis, so, the opportunity, whatever you like. <laughs> okay, so I'll I'll throw one down from all the areas. How about that? Great. Because I don't. I'm not going to just say one thing. I'm learning. I'm going to say three, maybe. That's fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So and and it might be learning and thinking. So the first thing I'm learning is that I can't remember things. I feel like that experience of those years of the pandemic, and I I am saying this about myself, but it's something I've been hearing from others, is something I don't remember. It feels like a big blank spot. And um, that's not actually true, because when I think back to those days, I do remember specific things, both terrifying things and interesting new things. So I do remember, but somehow I don't want to remember or the or the whole thing together seems like this spot like a big blank thing and yeah. and the reason i bring that up is because i suspect and i've heard that others feel the same way and i don't want that to be the case because the the pandemic revealed so much about what already existed and deepened it in many ways and and running over it with a big blank spot feels dangerous to me. So mm. that's one thing I've been thinking about. Um, and, you know, in more concrete terms, it's like, how do you, how do you take a set of really challenging experiences, but also ones that offered innovations and all kinds of other things, and then really surface them and face them, face them, even though they're hard and use them in ways that are helpful to us. That's one thing I'm 
I'm either learning or experiencing or thinking or one of those. Mm. Um, it also feels personal and professional. Yeah. So another thing that I'm learning and it's in the domain of like my work, which is all the, the sort of non-academic side of the house, right? All of the kinds of social, emotional foundations and supports for learning in any setting, but often we put it inside of schools. I've been thinking about um, how to, like a new model. <laughs> you know me, you know, I like to I think do. about frameworks and those <laughs> kinds of things. Well, but understatement, so, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I like to define things and get them organized, even though, as I just showed you with my big long list, it is completely disorganized. Um, <laughs> so we often say that um, we often start when we talk about social and emotional learning in particular, we start by defining the things that we think children should be able to do, the things that they should know and be able to do. We start with the child at the center of a big complex ecology, right? And we acknowledge the ecology. Mm. And that's really important because all of those settings influence and shape developmental pathways of whatever type. And then we say, but of course, relationships and interactions are really foundational to supporting children's skill development in this domain over time. So relationships are really essential, but we don't put them in the center. So the thing that I'm thinking- That's interesting. Yeah. And I'm learning is like, how do we, and this is gets to your question about like education transformed. How do we shift our gaze from, from having children and what they can and can't do at the center and invert the model, take mm. what's on the outside and put it in the center and have interactions and relationships and connections be at the center and therefore the focus, mm. which, which, as we know, if we really emphasize the quality of teaching interactions, of developmental relationships, of how adults work together, how kids work together. We know that the skills arrive, right? They come mm -hmm. out of that. So one thing I'm, <laughs> I'm learning and thinking is like, I'm thinking about how can we can create a model that inverts our, that just absolutely inverts every other model we have, put mm -hmm. something else at the middle. I like that. I like that a lot. Stephanie, the first piece that I think about is the like the strange quality that time has had over the last few years. I think it's your first reflection. It's like, you know, and thinking about learning through adversity. And I don't know, we might, and there's so much talk on resilience. And I'd love you to cover this point as, you know, as someone that's right at the forefront. You know, and I'm not sure resilience, depending on its definition, is exactly what we want because it's to resilience, it's to return to our original state as opposed to perhaps an anti-fragile understanding or a post-traumatic growth orientation, which is there's going to be these global shocks increasingly to our personal and professional lives. I mean, it kind of seems like the quality of life is struggle in some ways. And that's where we get growth, even if the struggle is trying to, you know, have some neurogenesis to create a new idea in a young person's brain so that they can. Right. And the second part about relationships, I would love us to speak more about that and it's something that our team is talking a lot about and our extended kind of 
network is how how might we recreate an education model that then becomes like a, a new understanding of a learning village or how a school could function mm -hmm. in in terms of a living ecology so rather than saying oh, here's an individual what do we want them to be able to know which is the old model we didn't really even think about skills and then what can they do with what they know great that's fine but it's based on the efficiency paradigm it's like right. who, do, who might we like them to be in relationship to themselves each other and the planet and all of a sudden, we've got this relational frame because, you know, what's the what's the old right. saying? Man is not an island or something. <laughs> something crazy. I mean, no, we're in this like we're all in this together. It's like it's not that we're just a single drop in the ocean. We're also the entire ocean in a single drop. That's a really, yeah. I think, kind of almost spiritual understanding of the the interconnectedness of everything in our entire planet. And you get into the quantum realm, and we're having the same conversation about entanglement. And non-local yeah. reality, you know, which are winning Nobel prizes. So that's kind of curious to me as well about the oh nature gosh. of consciousness itself, you know. And how we go into that, but yeah, take take us into <laughs> okay, any. So of... we started, we started here, and then we went real big, real quick. <laughs> We're dangerous We're so... together, Stephanie. You know that. <laughs> yes, I know, I know, but it's so thrilling. It so, is thrilling. Um, it is. Yeah, I have a hundred things to say about everything you just said, so I'll just start with one, which is. Right. It's related to the starting narrow and going huge. Like when you think about um, ecological systems theory, the kinds of models that we use to frame up our approaches, one being um, the ubiquitous kind of Bronfenbrenner's yeah. ecological systems theory. And we have the, as I was talking about, we have the child at the center and then we have the rings around it. The micro, meso, macro, et cetera, exo. All yeah. of them. Right. Yeah. And it's it's been it's been the most useful way to situate the things we care about in the things that we're often unwilling to accept or acknowledge the role of right so so it's been such a helpful way of thinking about human development but like if you if you look at and i am not this but i'll talk about it anyway if you look at <laughs> how a biologist yeah. or like uh someone who works with biological systems or ecological systems out in the world, like in nature, the picture they give you is not a circle of something at the center with the rings. It's a whole flat object, right? And it has the different things in it. It's like in the textbook, it's a square <laughs> and mm -hmm. inside it is the water, the plants, the the creatures who live there. And your gaze is not pointed in that one single... place only. Yeah. Right. And so and the message is that, you know, touching any part of the ecology affects all other parts and and it's deeply relational. And I just, you know, not to obsess about this point too much, but it is about shifting our gaze in some ways away from the places we assume it should go and 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 finding other centers in the ecology that that we might focus on, which is why I'm talking about like in my domain, non-academic or social and emotional skills, inverting those rings to focus on relationships, but others might have a different place to mm. put their gaze. So, so um, that kind of ecological view, I think has a, we have an opportunity to think about it in a new way now. And we should, the pandemic gave us 
an acute sense of how all the systems are so deeply connected to each other and that there isn't just one center of gravity that we should putting be putting our attention to. So, um, so that's one thing that your comments made me think of. You mentioned resilience, and of course, these are all related to each other. And it made me think that we're having a conversation of ours. So I started with relationships. <laughs> when I think about <laughs> resilience, um, you're right. It's um, it's assumed that, or it's technically defined as um, doing well or maintaining uh, despite adversity, exposure to adversity. And what achieves the balance, the kind of doing well or maintaining is that there are protections and supports on the other side of adversity that sort of equalizes the scales. But, but mm -hmm. you're right. It's it's the assumption is that we're either going to keep going, keep surviving despite challenge without addressing challenge necessarily, or try to just get back to some sort of original way that maybe wasn't working so well. So I agree with you the paradigm of resilience. Mm. Um, maybe we need to rethink it. And I wrote down a couple of words that are kind of like, it's like almost like a dimensional approach to these R's or yeah. to how we respond to challenge. And, and we might start with something that's like response, like what do we do right then? Mm -hmm. Then then how do we build resilience through a response by building up protection or protective factors in the face of adversity? And that leads us to think like, okay, how do we recover? Mm -hmm. But then what you're saying is if we're going to rethink the paradigm of resilience is like, Let's go further to how do we remake or reinvent? And then I would say, and this came from something I I that Rob Yeagers, who's at Castle, wrote a while ago, which is like, how do we go from remake to resist? Right? Yeah. Which is like, how do we resist the impact of adversity or how do we resist and actively work against the kind of set of structural inequities that make mm -hmm. this all happen in the first place. Like, how are we going to fight? <laughs> it pushes us into like fight mode, which I kind of like. I like that a lot. And so, I mean, Stephanie, <laughs> I love that you just, you know, the way your brain works. I've got to be honest. It's like, oh, here we go. Here's a way, here's a taxonomy. Here's a model of how this could play out. <laughs> It's okay, so now good. we have the six R's. Now right? we got the six R's again. It's no, I really love it. The one I, the one I really want to consider is is your reflection because you know often we think about, especially with this transforming education space movement, and clearly this is now the global narrative coming from the OECD, the World Bank, World Economic mm -hmm. Forum, UN, etc. So, uh, but the, I, I wonder about this idea of struggle versus suffering is one thing I'd like us to speak to because struggle to me seems to be the act of learning in some ways you know there needs to be a zone of proximal confusion you know right. a zone of proximal challenge you know and the goldilocks zone or proximal development or you know vygotsky stuff from way back and right. and then i also wonder about you know i think the the impact of user-centered design such that i'm going to make your life easier stephanie by making it so easy that you never have to really kind of do anything except press a button from a device that's connected to everything else and is trying to extract your attention as the most valuable commodity of the modern era. So 
I, you know, like in, I'm talking with principals all over the over the world, all over Australia, and educators, and you know, they're seeing this kind of. We have this paradox of these really resilient young people that, in many ways, are not resilient. And it's this because they they walk the cross country run, for example, they refuse to run, or they, you know, they just right. don't see the kind of expansive experience of growth because I think they've been so we've all been so captured by this space. So I'm curious about that because rather than saying, oh, well, it's good for you, a spoonful of concrete, you know, right. like, clearly that's not the way because it doesn't build emotional agility or anything else on, right. on a well-being. But then on the other side is this kind of cotton wool approach in which I think also doesn't enable us to strive to become our, our greatest possibility for contribution. I don't know. There's right. a lot in that, but I'm, I'm, these are some yeah. of the things that we're considering. Well, I mean, those are interesting words, struggle versus, um, what did you say, suffer? Suffering, as maybe something yeah. that is unnecessary and we should bring down, but struggle being right. kind of a core theme to, you know. Right. Um, and I yeah. wonder if a way to think about struggle is um, less uh, adv- sort of less averse. Mm. Mm. <laughs> And and the word I wrote down was grapple. Oh, nice. Sort of where so um and we and it's kind of like we can think about kids as they're learning something along or systems as they learn things. I'm trying to get myself out of the kid focused language, like yeah. and and um settings as they learn things, adults mm-hmm. as they learn things, that there's there's the things we think we know, right? That we're we feel comfortable and we're we have them under our belt. They're in our toolbox. Those kinds mm-hmm. of things, things mm-hmm. that we are working on, we don't know. We are successful and not. Mm-hmm. And then the things that we absolutely cannot do, but we have in our sights. And so, um, it feels like that's a in the middle is the grapple, right? Mm-hmm. I'm grappling with something. I'm working on something. I'm engaged with it. It is it is pulling me in. Yeah. I'm, nice. I'm like, it's, it's lined yeah. up with what I, that's the Vygotsky. It's lined up with where I am developmentally with what I am seeking, um, you know, uh, based on my interest and in all of those things. So that feels like me, like, you know, they say productive struggle. I call that my version of that is grapple. Nice. <laughs> I actually say it all the time. I don't know why, but, but it's, it's like, what it's are you good. grappling with? And it's yeah. doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be negative. Mm. Right. It's like, I'm tangling with this thing. So um, I hear you on the, we may have set up ways of learning or ways of interacting or systems of engagement that are not engaging. Mm. Right. Mm. That are that pull that create a set of skills that don't require some of this maybe more um i don't know foundational more tactile yeah. grapple and i don't know how learning happens without it i don't think it well i i'm i don't think it does i think you know this idea of grappling and then understanding the relationships between constructs or ideas or even the relationships between neurons synaptic right. you know um i just think that's so i love the the idea of grappling because uh, it is tactile you're right and i wonder stephanie if we've just been asking ourselves in these ecologies these learning ecologies to be grappling with the wrong things which is 
you know, for example, compliance, you have to grapple with sitting still as a young child where you're not actually designed for biopsychosocially, you know, to do that, you know, but no, sit still and listen. And you have to grapple with this really kind of self-regulation, but without any kind of tools to to kind of use it. I mean, Right. Yeah. So, so that's a great example. That's a really good example of some of the misfires, right? That, that, um, what we really want is for a child to be engaged in the learning task, whatever it is, it could be listening to something someone is reading. It could be sitting. I mean, all of this with this idea that they're sitting, mm. right. Sitting and doing an activity on, at, at a desk, <laughs> whatever it is, doesn't matter. Yeah. And we, the adults, we want that to happen. And we think that the child, let's say the seven-year-old is sitting there for that 30 minutes struggling with the reading comprehension or the math problem. What they're struggling with is sitting there for 30 minutes, right? Like we've confused. We've conflated the component, them. Yeah. Right? And yeah. so our goal is to is the sit and the learn rather than the the or maybe our task or what we're tasked with is to get kid to sit and learn this thing rather than engage the child in something that will pull their mind in pull them into the learning and and we confuse what we see as a result is like either you know disengagement lack of effort lack of capacity when in fact it's just a completely misaligned task for that child yeah that's that's what happens in the domain like my my world of social and emotional learning and related endeavors is like we get confused on implementation and interaction about the terms right we we think we're 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 working towards self-control but what we're working on is compliance to adult demands which i mean i guess your listeners can't see me grit my teeth and gasp but that's what i did <laughs> it's such a great it's such a great piece to this and then and so we, we are in some way and then we conflate the resilience building from that which is to say ah see well well done and we reward the compliance and then of course it's not it's not actually the learning task itself I, i've been reading a lot about flow theory mm-hmm. you know stephanie which you would know a lot about and I really think, you know, this idea that what we're talking about is the grappling that that mm-hmm. kind of in some ways, you know, lures us into this flow state, which is our yeah. entire being is focused intensely on this task such that it becomes, you know, one of the acronyms from Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel is, you know, stir, becomes selfless, timeless, effortless, and filled with richness. It's this really wonderful drop in. But I'd love, I'd love some of your reflections on this space because i really think and, and the correlations here are so clear between the amount of flow even micro flow that you experience in your day or in your life and your overall satisfaction level mm-hmm. of your life because you have a sense of momentum or purpose and some of the conversation we were talking about before going to air you know this idea of being present you're so in it you're in your life in your body and i want to I want to ask you some questions about embodiment as well and the body mind link because I'm so interested about that as well. We might have to do a second part. <laughs> well, but... you're so in it, you don't even know you're in it, but you're <laughs> in it. But you do know, right? That's yeah. the that's the flow thing, which is like you're I mean, 
I don't know as much about it as you suggest I do, but I have a sense, which is like, you're in it, but you are, you aren't aware and you are hyper aware, mm. right? You're, and that's the, the stir thing. Um, I hadn't heard that acronym, but it's super interesting. And I, I wanted to pause on effortless mm. because it's effortful, yeah, right? It's effortless brain, effort, they say. Yeah. Effortless your brain effort. is deeply engaged yeah. and you are both consciously aware of that engagement and unconscious of the effort. I think, I mean, that's, that's nice. like the state of it. Um, I just, I just return to, um, this idea that children and adults learn when engaged in things that are interesting to them. And that seems like a very overly simplified <laughs> kind of way of talking about it, but it is, you, it's hard to get away from that. Mm. You know, we are human, we are human, we are social and human beings <laughs> and the things that interest us, pull us in. It pulls us into the learning and it pulls us into that state of being engaged if it's at the right level and in the place that makes sense and all those conditions are there, which are not many. So um, what, what are kids interested in and how do we engage them around the mechanics of the stuff that we need them to know using things that they are drawn to and that i don't think means like the simple answer of video games or whatever right kids yeah. are interested in in screens it means um you know big questions big ideas big interesting topics mm -hmm. you know it's it's like a oh, stephanie's that that example of um I think it was Veronica Box Mansilla that I heard it from, actually, the Future of Learning Institute, but um, years ago at, at HGSC. But the mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, everyone's in the classroom, something's happening outside the window, and someone's looking outside the window. And then the educator, hardworking, well-intentioned, says, uh, excuse, can you pay attention to the learning? And of course, what's going on outside the window could be like the most fascinating thing. And this is kind of, I think, how we have in within the system that we've inherited, frankly, it's a legacy system. Um, mm -hmm. And there are components of it that are palliative. And there are some parts of it that are deeply human and, and powerful and effortful. And mm -hmm. I just, I wonder about to your, your R's before, it's like we do need to rethink and then remake and in some ways then resist. And I, I see the greatest impacts that I see are coming from, from leaders who are so courageous that they say, I'm going actually I'm going to resist that system yeah. pressure because I believe in this this and this and here's why and that that stance I think really creates you know it creates a case for what's what matters most right now yeah you know and this is the whole the whole piece that you're leading globally if I might say on the social and the emotional uh, aspects developments you know competencies you know however we frame them of learning and, and coupling those to the academics. I mean, we're seeing this, it's still bifurcated, which is insane. You know, when you look at the effective neurosciences, I mean, it's so interesting. It's like, oh, well, we're going to feel just right in that one place. <laughs> just, yeah. It's so interesting. And, 
And yet the, the need to kind of separate social and emotional is in, I think, a vehicle to be able to elevate it. So then to reconnect it to the cognitive. I mean, I, I'd love you to talk a little bit about how you see this unfolding in the coming years, you know, because as someone that's looking a lot at futures, we say, uh-huh. well, someone born while we're having this conversation, finishing high school, if there are high schools in 2040. And you're like, oh, well, that's kind of a long way away. I don't know. Oh my God. So Thank God. how do you yeah. see this future playing out from your desired, you know, perspective? The um, I mean, I don't know. We're in a, a, a confusing time when, you know, at least in the U.S., and I'm certain this is the case in other places around the globe, there's a lot of documenting the things that were lost and the gaps that have emerged pandemic related. And um, uh, that's going to, you know, push and pull in one direction or another. And, and I guess one fear I have is that we will, um, we'll ignore what I talked about at the beginning, which is that blank space at our peril. So the blank space is not simply missed learning opportunities, the opportunity to learn algebraic functions. The 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 blank space is is I think it's blank for all of us because we lost social interaction, mm. lost social connection in some ways, and gained it in others. But but the loss concept is prevails, I think. And I think that creates blankness. And so if we respond by not intensively focusing on rebuilding social connection, social interaction, social relationships, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to miss the mark. Right. So, and, and I, I think that I hear that (laughs) (laughs) I say it, I hear myself say it a lot. Um, but I don't think that I uh, hear it enough. And I worry that we are, we're going to jump to intensive makeup formulations for learning things, like acquiring specific skills, as opposed to, you know, building deeper forms of knowledge and you know, really incorporating and understanding things. So I'm I'm saying this in a kind of confusing way. I just, because I don't want to say, ignore all of these really present and important sort of gaps yeah. in acquiring certain kinds of skills. I don't think we should ignore that, but I don't think that the pathway to it mm. is necessarily um the one that I hear people taking all the time. I think it the pathway to it is through rebuilding relationships by intensively recovering some of that blank space for kids and engaging them in those things. When you talk to kids, the things they love to talk about and adults, I would say, yeah. are their emotions, their brain, their relationships with other people, the interactions they have, like Absolutely. their encounters with the world. That's what they want to talk about. So let's talk about that with them and then find our way to those specific skills, which we will find our way to. Mm. I love that word encounter in particular, an encounter with the world 
in in some ways an encounter with your being inter encountering the world itself you know so that intra and, and inter yeah. relationships that i think is a beautiful way to finish um <laughs> i mean i've got so many more questions but Stephanie, know, we, we, we could talk for days and, and we will yes. one day um but this idea of relationships is key and and all the pieces around the ecology i love this other frame that i'm taking from this conversation which is how do we shift our gaze mm-hmm. instead of just be like oh well how, how are we doing student well-being it's actually how are we considering that as a feature of this living ecosystem at whatever level and you know that, yes. that larger piece um my final question to you is what's your take-home message there's something to leave us and marinating on encountering in our own way what would you say it is <laughs> um i i mean this is this is so simple but it's really like don't give up we got to keep at it and having conversations like this is invigorating. So find your invigorating conversation. If you need help keeping going with the hard work, you feel down about what's happening in the world, find the invigorating conversation and it'll help you keep going. Beautiful. Professor Stephanie Jones, thank you so much for your time on the Learning Future podcast and just for being a wonderful human being. I continue to learn so much from you you over time. And um, I look forward to future conversations as well. Keep going. All the best. Thank you. 